kill him. Here, what about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. It's me this week, and we are starting a short trilogy of how the fuck have I not picked this before? I've not picked a single Daredevil book in two years of podcasting. So we're fixing that today. Uh, we are reading Daredevil Born Again. That's, um, was it Daredevil 227 to 233? Yeah, there we go. Uh, Frank Miller writing our first Frank Miller book as well, I think, unless I'm mistaken. I think it's the first one. It's going to be like one of maybe three that we ever do. Unless we really want to hate read something. We could read Holy Terror. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, David Mazzuccelli, whose name I'm going to fuck up probably at some point in this, and I apologize in advance, on pencils or art. Uh, I think he does the inking as well. Christy Scheel on colors for issues 227 and 229. Richmond Lewis on colors for issue 228. And Max Scheel on colors for 230 and 233. And then Joe Rosen on the letters. So you're a longtime Daredevil fan, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, I, so you've talked about Moon Knight being the most consistently well like, good books Marvel character. And my one possible counterpoint to that probable fact is Daredevil has pretty much always had an ongoing book since the 80s, and it's certainly this century, it's pretty much always been good. There's one exception, and that exception is Shadowland. Yeah, when we were talking before, I said that I had never read any Daredevil I could not think of a single issue. I realized I was incorrect. I've read a whopping two before this. Because I read Daredevil number one in one of those shitty kids target graphic novels of everyone's <laughs> first appearance. And I had read the first issue of Electra because she looked cool. And so I read that and was like, that was good. I'd be interested to read more. And never did. But I've effectively read No Daredevil. This was certainly my first time reading a full story. Well, that's why we've picked Born Again. Because this is the Daredevil book where I'm like, do you vaguely know who Daredevil is? Which, I mean, you do because you read superhero comics. You've read other Marvel books that he's appeared in, presumably. Then this is the one you hand as someone where here is a one and done thing. To understand this, you don't need to read anything else. and while this is followed up on very effectively in the Anne Nascenti Daredevil run, which is excellent, and we will definitely be picking something from at some point, you don't have to follow this up with anything else either. It is, weirdly, this is a thing that Malvashi doesn't do very often, where they will have just, like, two creators do a story that is self-contained, and you can give a name and publish by itself, that DC does all the time. Like, DC has that fucking um, black label line that is just designed to mass-produce things that will just eventually be collected in trades and sold forever. Like, Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, you know, that black label line is producing, like, four of them a year. Um, Wonder Woman Historia being my favorite that I've read. And, like, that's what this is. It, it does also help this... Comparison obviously comes to my mind because this is the same team who did Batman Year One, which they did after this. So if you are reading this and you're like, wow, I'm getting some real Batman Year One vibes from this. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, reading it, I thought about just like 
the historical context of when this comes out and just like there is a trait of this but that was more rare back then you know it doesn't feel like made for the trade to the same extent that say anything post 2005 does but it does still manage to be very easily understandable like i can tell that i am technically plopping into the middle of something with just like slight references to whatever beforehand and like feels like oh yeah and we're gonna keep going from here but not in a way that was negative or like impacted reading in a unfortunate way or anything like that like i feel like even if i didn't know who daredevil was i would have been fine oh well because this jim shooter style does tell you who daredevil is at the start of every single issue Daredevil has to stop and have a think about how he's blind and got blinded when he saved an old man from traffic and, like, was blinded by radioactive material that gave him super senses aside from, you know, the obvious one he lost and how he then trained with ninjas and became Daredevil. It is that era of mandatory explanation, yeah. I mean, I kind of love it because the, the challenge is saying it a different way every single time and I think that's kind of fun. Maybe we need to bring this back. Is Was Jim Shooter right all along about this and nothing else? I mean, I prefer it this way over having an ugly, like, text page at the beginning of every issue. Yeah, just do, like, a splash page of the hero doing something cool while thinking about themselves. Or, in this case, having narrative captions that are just what thought bubbles used to be about themselves. Because this is also, like, that moment where you know, people like Frank Miller kind of got the thought bubble kicked out of comics. Every issue of Spider-Man could simply forgo the previously on and just have Spider-Man punching someone with a ward balloon about Uncle Ben there. That's yeah. all you need. Yes. So, Born Again, this is like a lot of issues for the way that we normally cover things on this podcast, so I'm just gonna, like, summarize it loosely and then we'll talk more in depth about some of the different plots because there is a lot going on uh but the essence of it is matt murdoch is daredevil and his girlfriend from the 1960s comics karen page who left him to go to hollywood and become an actress has become addicted to heroin become a porn star and then is selling his like we open the book with her at her lowest point selling his secret identity for a fix. This information makes its way up the little criminal ladder to Kingpin, who already uh, in... So Frank Miller obviously did the Frank Miller Daredevil run. That is before this. So the reinvention of this character to this like gritty crime, bringing Kingpin in as his arch-nemesis, that all happens in the Frank Miller run, which is good. I mean, no one shuts up about it. And so Kingpin's like, oh, great, I would love to have this information. I'm going to test it. And so when we start actually getting stuff about Matt Murdock, he's got his funds frozen by the IRS because they're auditing him. His bank is convinced that he's not paid out his last two mortgage payments, even though he knows he has, but he can't prove it because of the IRS. He gets framed for lying to, because he's a lawyer, Matt Murdock's a lawyer. You you know who Daredevil is. That show's really good. Watch the show. The show's good. Um, you know, just various things where his life is being slowly pulled apart via Kingpin just paying people off in different organizations to just fuck him up. So while Daredevil is trying to fight against this complete destruction of his life and becoming more paranoid and frustrated and angry, Kingpin has everybody who was aware of like Murdoch's identity killed. Um, so when the line of assassins make their way to Karen, she realizes that she needs to run back to New York to get back with Matt. Meanwhile, Matt, who has been disbarred, he's been you know, he hasn't got a job, he hasn't got money, he's about to lose his house, he's going to lose he's already lost everything in his life. He's Paranoia is already straining his professional, personal and professional relationships. He gets home, 
his house blows up in front of him. And that's when he realizes that it was Kingpin. Uh, this page is fucking great, by the way. <laughs> we'll get into that later. So Matt goes into uh, a very Matt Murdock depressive um, spiral. You know, his sanity is at an absolute limit. He eventually does get himself together enough to go and try to beat the shit out of Kingpin, but he's a mess, so Kingpin wipes him out easily. And Kingpin thinks that he's managed to kill Daredevil by, like, sticking him in a taxi and driving it off a pier, but, you know, he didn't. Matt eventually makes his way to a um, church where he is saved by Sister Maggie, who is, like, a nun in the convent, and, you know, they have, they, like, help people there. Meanwhile, all this is happening, uh, Ben Urich, who is a reporter friend of Matt's, who knows that he's Daredevil, has been trying to get to the bottom of, like, the framing of Daredevil. Uh, well, yeah. Has been trying to get to the bottom of Matt being framed. Uh, but basically, Kingpin puts a stop to it. He hires a nurse to attack him, um, uh, to kill the man who, like, set up Matt in front of Yurik, so Yurik is scared off the story. And so Yurik is going through his own, like, personal crisis. Karen, on, to get back to New York, falls in with a very bad man who is a very big fan of the porn films she used to make. All of this starts coming to a head when Daredevil sort of got himself back to health, and he's in a healthier place mentally, although he's still, frankly, he's still Matt Murdock, so he's not doing that well. He starts behind the scenes helping Ben out, and then when Karen makes it to town and is, well, Foggy Nelson, who's Matt's and her's friend, who doesn't know that Matt is Daredevil at this point, which may seem odd to people because everyone, like, who reads Daredevil now, Foggy's always the only one who knows, but this was actually back when he didn't. Kingpin hires, like, a psychopathic mass murderer to dress up in Daredevil's outfit to try and kill his friends, but Daredevil stops him and, like, takes the outfit for himself. He and Karen are reunited, and Matt immediately forgives her and then starts helping her, like, get over her addiction. Uh, ben finds his courage again and starts working on the story. Meanwhile, Kingpin hires Nuke, who is the Captain America from Vietnam, and is exactly what Captain America, but he was made during Vietnam, sounds like he would be, and has him, like, set up to go and attack Hell's Kitchen because he's just, like, fucking done with trying any other methods at getting it. Matt and his friends at this point. After Daredevil barely defeats him, the Avengers show up on behalf of the US government to take Nuke away because, like, the general that Kingpin had blackmailed into letting him use Nuke uh, is obviously trying to, like, cover all this up. Matt does reveal himself at this point to Ben, and he's back as Daredevil, and quietly works with Captain America, who also has some pretty cool moments in this that we'll wind up talking about, uh, in order to, like, get Nuke to the Daily Bugle to testify that he was sent by Kingpin. And while none of this is able to actually stick to Kingpin or make him get locked up, it ruins his reputation, and Kingpin's no longer able to hide behind legitimate business. Everybody knows he's a criminal, even if the US government itself hasn't been able to get to the point where it can prove it. And Matt's back to living in Hell's Kitchen. He's cooking at a diner, which is a job he actually likes doing, and unlike lawyering, that also just changes again later. <laughs> and is sane again, and is helping, he and Karen Page are, like, seeing each other again, and he's, like, helping her with her problems. It's about the size of it, yeah. 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 It's, it's a lot. It's, like, going back to the sort of ongoing aspect of it. The last two issues with Nuke, feels sort of separate, but not at the same time. You know what I mean? So technically those are not part of Born Again, 
but because they are so directly tied in with the plot and actually lead to what I would say is the conclusion of the story, every single collected edition of Born Again includes them. But yeah, the reason they feel separate is because they're kind of technically supposed to be. They're a two-issue nuke story that like just feels like it's more of Born Again. And it's like after this that it's like, oh, this is post-born again. It's very it's it's a bit odd. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Though to be fair, like having it end on the Kingpin's reputation tanking feels like a natural close in opposition to the opening of the tanking of Matt's reputation. So in that way it feels like a more appropriate ending. If you were adapting this into a movie, you would make the guy Kingpin has wear a Daredevil outfit and attack Hell's Kitchen, and Nuke be the same guy. Yeah. That's, like, the one change you would need to make, because this is actually really, like, cinematically tall. Uh, this nearly got made into the second Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. It is the loose basis of the third season of the Daredevil TV show. It is generally the reference point the, the nearly made fox period piece 70s action film um daredevil movie that like wound up not happening because um they didn't get it together in time and they lost the rights to marvel which is how the netflix show happened was going to just be an adaptation of this i will say i feel like that summary really doesn't express the experience of reading this um i don't know where do you, where do you want to start in terms of talking about the the details there's a lot but i suppose we can start with the utter unraveling of matt's psyche which isn't really a slow unraveling so much as like five to ten pages in we are looking at a man who is at the lowest point of his life and that continues through like half of the story as just like the narration has him seeming just like the least mentally stable person you've ever seen, which there's the stress, the understandably money stress, which even just thinking about that, I'm like, well, that would be enough for me to lose all grip on reality. Keep in mind, he's not just losing his house, he's losing his house and having the power turned off in the middle of the winter. So no matter where he goes and tries to sleep, he's, like, barely sleeping while also freezing to death while doing it. While being broke and having no one to go to. And, like, all of his business connections and everything, more or less except for Foggy, are just not receptive to him anymore because of how tanked his reputation is. They're, like, worried about being smeared by association, essentially. And all of that's going on. And he's just tired, lost everything, mind is not focused. He starts to think that everything in the world is out to get him, because it largely is. Except he also starts to think that the only couple people that aren't out to get him are also out to get him. And there's this sort of added, like, thing of, oh... I guess I'm just going to put this in the way that, like, this trope feels like it's meant to be felt, even though, you know, this is not the way I would talk about real people. But in addition to all of that, he has also lost his girl, and his best friend has taken his girl, you know? Well, that's why he winds up being, like, nearly as paranoid about Foggy as he does everyone else, because, like, the moment this starts really going down the shitter, he calls his best friend... And his, like, brand new ex-girlfriend as of yesterday picks up the phone. Which, like, when we see the circumstances from, like, Foggy and her's point of view, yeah, it all makes sense. And, um, like, them getting together is fine. I have no idea what, like, Gloria's doing now in the comics. Like, what happened with her. I don't think she really shows up again much after this story. Because, uh, like, Foggy isn't in most of the Anasenti run. He comes in again right at the very end. And I don't remember her being there. And the 90s Daredevil is, like, the one chunk I've not read. But, um, yeah, like, that is definitely a trope. But also, like, Matt has an instinct 
especially, like, he has an instinct to keep secrets, and he has an instinct to, like, not rely on other people, which, coupled with his understandable paranoia, and then a couple coincidences, does fuck him over. He probably should have just crashed on Foggy's couch for a bit, but he's not thinking straight at all already. And also, Foggy and Gloria are busy on Foggy's couch, so... That is true. Well, I think Foggy at the very start is like, oh, I'll sleep on my couch. <laughs> yeah. A lot of this manifests in the narration, which, in keeping with a lot of 80s stuff, you know, the style here is much more heavy on narration than most modern Marvel books would be. A lot more captions, a lot more, like, dramatic narrator and I think it helps in terms of building up suspense and also just, like, the weight of the world on Matt's shoulders, you know, to have the dramatic announcer just constantly relaying the various things that he has to be paranoid about, as well as later on, just, like, the weight of, oh, I have super senses and that means that everything hurts because I can barely shut anything out. It's that sort of take on that power set when he's sort of at his lowest and can't keep his mind clear. I think there's a couple small places where I wish that the shift from omniscient narrator to first person had been a little smoother, but on the whole, I think the narration's very good, you know, and I think you could even say that, oh, some of that shift could have also just been intentionally meant to mimic just how frazzled his mind is, you know? So I get it. All in all, I think it works quite well for the most part. What about you? I really like it. I um, I like when a Daredevil story has, like, either very florid dialogue or very florid narration. Because, weirdly, comics are a visual medium, so the one sense that the main character cannot experience in like the extreme is also the one sense that we can see his stories with it's part of like one of those weird paradoxes where like daredevil is a great character for comics but it's partly because he lets like the writer do stuff like this like that's why frank miller was interested in him in the first place apparently was like the senses as the superpower um so yeah i i like it i think that this works very well i do think that like later on i mean even as as soon as the next time this pair collaborated on a story batman year one they figured out the lettering thing and making captions more clear um all the store all the uh like journal pages in batman year one where like you have the torn paper and you can tell who was speaking just from looking at the caption box, which now was just standard, but, like, back when this was done, they didn't do that, really. Yeah, and, like, the couple switches, when I say couple, it really was only a couple times where, like, the switch was quick enough or, like, within the same page enough or whatever for it to even, like, slightly bother me, you know, where it was mostly just a matter of, oh, it is in all of these visually uniform captions on the same page, and, like, the text doesn't actually change, you know, not even from, like, italicized to not, or vice versa. But, yeah, I feel like me even mentioning it makes it sound like more of a big deal or more of a frequent problem than it is. Because for the most part, it is just nice dramatic narration i like the parts where there's these pages where it'll either literally be a splash page or even if there are multiple panels it'll be like silent and all of the text will be arranged going down in paragraphs down like flush on the side of the page in the white space next to all of the panels themselves and so the text is kind of literally visually separate from the panels which might sound strange to say that i like the separation of those two things in comics but i think the way that it's done here 
is really good. You know, like it helps the panels be less cluttered and it's just sort of adds more of a sense of like the narrator being a disembodied figure watching over the events as we have like the florid language right next to the events being described, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense to me. I also like it's some of those, it's, it's sort of established very directly in the text as being like something being written by Ben Urich for the newspaper and stuff like that, which I also think makes that work really well, where you're getting like, this is a news article, and then we're also getting the visuals alongside it that are basically like the pictures you would have with the article in the paper, uh, which I also like getting that sort of semi-outsider's perspective on it. Should we talk about Ben and his role in the story? Yeah, because I think Ben's storyline is actually one of my favorites. I uh, I really love Ben Urich. He is a major Marvel recurring character in both like Daredevil and, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, Spider-Man books. I actually think he's more of a Spider-Man character these days, because he and, and Matt have a big falling out. But, um... Yeah, he's a reporter at the Daily Bugle. We get some actually very good appearances by J. Jonah Jameson in this. And as I said in sort of the the brief summary, his story is all about how he's, you know, he's trying to help his friend and, like, figure out this story. Because he, the, um, what happens with Matt, legally at least, is a well-known to, like, never-be-on-the-take cop, testifies that he saw Matt, like, slip money to a juror. And so, you know, normally it would be difficult for someone to, like, get Matt, but, like, basically this guy's reputation is so clean that it's very hard to say that this is a frame-up. So Yurik's investigating sort of finds that, turns out the his kid needed an operation and he couldn't afford it, which is like finally the thing that gets him to, you know, take money from the kingpin by extension. And while he's there, there is nurse, uh, her name's Lois, I think. Uh, she's great. <laughs> she's only in this because she, she does not survive the story, but she's fantastic. She is this big bruiser of a nurse and after the kid dies because the operation gets fucked up and the cop is like, okay, well now there's no point, I'm gonna come clean to Yurik and, you know, that'll, like, save Matt's job and reputation at the very least. Uh, the nurse goes, beats the shit out of him and then starts breaking Yurik's fingers one by one. So Yurik is obviously terrified. Um, he tries to quit the story and we get this really great page with, um, there's a lot of pages like this uh, where we get the noir lighting on the characters where Mazzucci draws the the half-drawn blinds across characters' face, and we get J. Jonah Jameson, like, berating Yurik for chickening out on this story in, like, this incredibly moody uh, page where the coloration is all in red. It's great. And Yurik, you know, still too scared to go forward with it leaves and the janitor says that he needs to remember he's got five more fingers and that the kingpin's watching like the kingpin fucking owns everyone yeah i think that the pacing and suspense of the bin portions of the story i think really hold the whole thing together i think having such a major part of the drama be handled through this outside perspective works in a lot of ways. One, sort of highlighting how isolated Matt is, you know, by just having to have all the other characters sort of react around him and try and uncover relevant narrative details that he is too mentally unstable to do right now, you know. So Ben ends up sort of able to do the detective work aspect of the story, and it also just helps further highlight the nature of the Kingpin as a criminal in this story, and 
in general, I love just, like, the distance that Kingpin has from everything else, because there's, like, one scene where he physically fights Daredevil, and otherwise, it's mostly sporadic pages of the Kingpin, like, staring at something with more of that florid narration, just, like, he's looking at this little annoyance, like a bug to be squashed, but he <laughs> wants to savor it. He can't squash the bug yet. He's like a spider in his web. Yeah, and then parts where Matt sort of bounces back are all from Kingpin getting too impatient. Like him blowing up the house, Matt refers to as him signing the crime, basically. Yeah, none of this said not mobster until you blew up my house. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, what was it? It was a great, oh my god, I should know this quote by heart, because this is, like, one of the quotes from this story. The number of Daredevil comics I have read that have fucking quoted this. It was a nice piece of work, Kingpin. You shouldn't have signed it. And this is while, like, we have him in the ruins of his house picking up the tattered Daredevil, like, outfit, and it's being reflected in his sunglasses. Uh, which, we haven't really talked about Mazatucci's art yet, but it's so fucking good. I really love it. It's really good, yeah. It's really detailed, but, like, it's not afraid to get charactered at moments. Like, uh... The scene where Ben Urich is on the phone with the cop who framed Matt, and he is trying to, without telling him directly, get him to not say anything because he knows he's going to get killed if he does. But then the nurse comes in and strangles him while he's on the phone with Urich, and we just see Urich's eyes get bigger and bigger, and the colorist actually starts drawing him in red where we see, like, the effect of just hearing someone die on the other end of the line and there's nothing he can do is having on him. And he's in, like, a crowded office. There's all these other characters around him having all these other conversations and getting frustrated with him for not listening to them. <laughs> and he's hearing someone fucking die. Yeah, there's a lot of very effective just, like, zooming in as the scene continues on... Ben's face because like you start out with like all the commotion of the Daily Bugle and all these other characters talking in the background and that slowly decreases a bit as it continues as the focus just draws more and in on his facial reactions and then all of this also color wise as well contrasted against the hospital scenes because it's basically just these full page length rectangular panels where they just alternate hospital then daily bugle then back and the hospital is always in just these blue tones a much more monochromatic look that contrasts effectively against the more full and warmer uh color palette of the daily bugle art yeah it's it's all really effectively done um there's a lot of panels where there's just, like, a lot of background detail. Like, you get a real sense of the city and the vault that the characters are living in, which, like, you don't always get, especially in a superhero book. And this is all very street level. It's very, you know, they are not just in New York. They are in a specific neighborhood. They are just in Hell's Kitchen. That's Daredevil's whole thing. And you can actually, like, feel the city and feel the location. It does feel much more concerned with the city than some books do. Yeah, like, this is not a Avengers book where they're leaving to fight aliens. This all does very much feel like, okay, this is a vigilante in a city, and here is the crime scene in this city, here we have Kingpin pulled back, pulling strings, and everyone is somehow involved in that, from the police to people on the street, etc., etc. It all feels lived in and connected in a way that's effective. Yeah, I mean, you even get, like, Matt's crappy one-room apartment that he's living in by the end of the story, where, like, there's pages where you'll see all the pipes on the wall and, like, the just the, the sink in the in the regular living space because it's, it's New York and it's really specific and I really, really like that. I um, also think Masatucci's just great at, like, characters' expressions. 
like, this book does have some action. I think when he draws the action, it's always very good. But he's, at his best, drawing these, like, moments of dialogue and contemplation, and then also these, like, panels where we just see the world that the story is taking place in, and we see, like, 1980-something New York. I can't remember what year this actually came out in, but, like, back when Hell's Kitchen was actually, like, not the, uh, I think it's the theater district now. <laughs> like, Hell's Kitchen, as, a, as as part of a city, is very different than it used to be. I'll also note, just like how good the outer architecture always looks when we pan out to a view of just, like, the skyline, where just the buildings always look really good, in terms of all the little minutiae of details, but also against the backdrop of sky, particularly when we get a good amount of weather in this story. You know, it's not a a book where it's just all sunny and the same. We get both some nice snowfall imagery as well as some, like, torrential rain downpour later, which helps it feel all the more real as well. And we get to see a subway car, which yes. goes a long way towards making it feel like New York or just, you know, a big city. We get to see inside of a subway car for a scene. Well, we get the subway car and we get the um, the water tanks on top of the building with that, like, round shape with the angle, which is just so New York. I mean, that's an image I just kind of associate with Marvel comics because it's a number of Marvel books that'll, like, put that in. Uh, my Lego version of the Daily Bugle has one of those on top of it because it's just essential. How do we feel about Karen Page? I'm interested because Karen Page's role in the story is like understandably really controversial. I mean this as neutrally as I can. And I when I say this, it's not me having a passionate reaction to the character so much as just this just is what she is to me in this story. Just a weak, sniveling little wretch at the literal lowest a human can possibly be. You know, like, she is... I don't know, I guess it didn't strike me as offensive. I guess people can feel whatever they want. It's like, oh yeah, this person is incredibly fucked up because they're addicted to fucking heroin. You know? And like... I would assume there's probably some critique of the treatment of, I don't know, substance abuse or especially, like, a main female character or something. But I'm just like, yeah, people addicted to heroin end up really fucked up, and she's fucked up. So I guess it didn't bother me. It just was like, that is the fact of the story. What about you? So I know where this goes, which she becomes a major character in Daredevil comics, basically up until the point where Kevin Smith has uh, Bullseye kill the shit out of her. Like, the next person who writes Karen Page for any length of time at all, because there's like four issues after this, and then the Andesenti run starts, is Andesenti. Um, in which Karen Page is a really strong, like, well-defined character, and like, her addiction is a part of the story. I will say here it is Frank Miller needed a way for Kingpin to find out Daredevil's secret identity, and so he's like, oh, that girlfriend he had back in the 60s. What if I fuck her up? So I understand the critiques, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you in that I'm sort of like, well, sometimes people are addicted to heroin. Yeah, and like from a gender perspective, sometimes women are bad and do bad things. Yeah. And sometimes we just have to depict that. And same with the substance abuse. Yeah. Well, and I also have the benefit of having read the comics after this that add a lot more depth to her ongoing. Like, because of this story, she is an ongoing presence in Daredevil comics. If it weren't for this story, she wouldn't be in that show. Where but... she's great. And they have done, like, a sort of loose adaptation of aspects of this as part of her backstory. That makes sense. Yeah, like... As someone who has not read the... As someone who read this and read Daredevil number one and has not read Daredevil number two for 226, my impression was that, yeah, she probably wasn't a 
major character all the way through, and this definitely seems like the sort of defining story that would sort of uplift every character in it to relevance that they otherwise wouldn't have. Like, my impression is that this is the Dark Phoenix saga of Daredevil in terms of just being the story. I would say that's probably the original Frank Miller run, whereas this is sort of a, a few years later, like, follow-up to that. But also, yeah, this is kind of the, like, for example, the Daredevil movie adapted the Frank Miller run really badly, and then this was the thing they were planning on doing next. The Daredevil TV show spent two seasons doing things that were basically inspired by the original Frank Miller run, and also, like, Daredevil's origin story, and then they did a loose adaptation of this. So, I, sh I guess it is, because when you do X-Men, you do, like, an X-Men versus Magneto, some loose adaptation of God Loves Man Kills, and then you do a really bad Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, like, this is at least one of the big story arcs, if nothing yes. less, like... I don't know if I could have told you another single, like, arc's name. The phrase Born Again, I was familiar with. It's specifically the name of in the new show. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense because they've already adapted it, and I'm like, please don't adapt it again, you already did this. But, like, yeah, it, the new show is called Born Again because what else are you going to fucking call it if you're not just going to call it Daredevil? Well, now that we keep saying born again, do we want to talk about the religion for a minute? Yes. So, if you can believe it, do you... Frank Miller is, the in his first run, established Matt as being Catholic. Do you want to know why? By all means. It's a joke. He said, oh, he's a vigilante and a lawyer, must be Catholic in forgiving himself about it. Okay. That's, that's how it got started, and it is now such an essential fact of the character to the point where I can say, oh yeah, most of Matt Murdock's issues are because he was raised Catholic. He has the Catholic guilt real bad. I really, like, as much as I'm like, yeah, Frank Miller, like, has said that he, like, came up with it as a joke, it is... I really like it in this. It's... Specifically, I guess we can note, it's not just, oh, this is all referred to as Born Again... Every individual issue has a separate title that is religious in nature. I went ahead and made the list. Let me see. So we start with Apocalypse. Then we have Purgatory. Pariah. Then the trade paperback titular Born Again. Then we have Saved. God and Country. And finally, Armageddon. Yeah. Um, the idea of essentially a second birth is obviously like very religious and that's that is what this is referred to throughout the story this is what matt undergoes in this story he goes to the lowest point he goes through like i suppose as close as someone with super senses can come to hell without actually being dead and then is literally reborn again in a church with his mother, by the way, I didn't mention this in the summary, but Sister Maggie, who is the one who takes care of him in the convent, turns out to secretly be his mother. Specifically revealed through, just like narration, about his hearing and being able to read heartbeats. And when he asks if she is his mom and she says no, he notes that her heartbeat sounds like a liar's. And... I don't outright dislike this because I think the writing, you know, is just strong enough throughout that it's not bad. It's one of the parts that I guess I feel the least about just because, like, secret family reveal is not a trope that I'm ever especially fond of. And I'm also just reading this, so I don't know what, if anything, comes out of play of it in this ongoing series that again this is pre-written through the trade and the way we know it now like it's not bad but i'm also like okay here's the defining cinematic story we have a family reveal so i fucking love maggie she's great 
Um, so the so up until now in Daredevil comics, he has always thought that his mother died in childbirth, and then he was raised by his single dad. And like after this, she becomes a sort of rare recurring character. We eventually find out, and it takes until the Wade run in like 2015 to get to this story. The reason she left is because she had postpartum depression so bad that she nearly killed him and she left for his own safety. And so, like, I, because, like, my Daredevil fandom started reading the Wade run, I have this, like, weird thing where I have that perspective on even this story and I'm like, it's really great that she's, like, getting to do this now for him. Help him with, like, his, uh, his rebirth as a person when he's completely broken to help him, like, recenter himself and find himself again. Um, so I, I, I like it. I, I like it as, even in the context of just this, I think that the, um, it's good news for him at the point where he would need good news. Like, oh, my mom's not dead. She, like, ran away for some reason and is now a nun and she's helping people in House Kitchen where I live. And at some point, he can actually have a conversation with her, which he does eventually. Kevin Smith really writes as well. Kevin Smith's Daredevil story is just a sequel to this that's like a bad sequel, but <laughs> Kevin Smith was the one who actually gets it to admit it to him. Yeah, regardless of what I said about like personal enjoyment of this general trope, I think it's about as well done as it could be here. I do like her. I think she at least like has potential as a character. I think that some of the hospital scenes are good examples of just like good facial expressions in the art as well. Happy Matt when he finds out is great. He's just like quietly satisfied because he can't be too visibly happy about it, otherwise she'll know that he's realized. Yeah. What do you think of the Kingpin here? This is arguably still the best Kingpin story. It it's it's flawless. The the fact that he so every scene with Kingpin is basically just him normally wearing nothing but like his weird diaper-esque underwear. Um, you know, either in a sauna with a bunch of other crime lords, or working out in his gym, or, like, just relaxing, or he's in, like, his full suit, sitting at a computer looking sinister, and just thinking about, like, you know, his attempts to become sort of seen as a legitimate businessman and not as a kingpin of crime, his, like, plans on ruining Matt Murdock's life, and, like, the joy he's taking in it. Like, the sadistic joy he takes in the idea of destroying a good person. Um, there's this great bit where one of his um, henchmen has been following Matt and sees Matt, who's, like, losing his mind, attacking people on the subway, and is like, oh, you are blessed, little thing. You have finally seen the dissolution of a good man. <laughs> and, like, the way he speaks to his henchmen so condescendingly, it's... It's fabulous, the fact that, yeah, as you said, there's the one physical confrontation, and then every other Kingpin scene, he is not seen with any other character in the story. He does not interact with anyone directly. Everything is intermediate. I'm sure we'll talk about Nuke in a little bit, but I really love the scene where he manipulates Nuke, and he's got, like, his own special made-up patriotism room that he's done, and he's put, like, a big American flag on the wall, and he's, like, I mean, it's obviously blatant manipulation, but it's because he knows how to manipulate people. That's his whole deal. That's where his real power comes from. Like, sure, he can snap your neck just by, like, grabbing you, but he, he only does that because he's at the point where he can. I think it's great. I think that this gets, like, both the physical and, more importantly, like, the mental threat of Kingpin. Yeah. Physically, I think it does a great job of giving that, like, imposing presence without ever even coming close to feeling like a fatphobic caricature, you know? Like, there's no part where I ever feel, like, yikes or anything like that. That's true. This is, like, one of the few Daredevil stories that Kingpin's in 
before like the last decade where no one calls him fat yeah now that you say that you're right yeah we don't even get i mean it's an insult as well to be clear yeah there's nothing wrong with the word but there is when you're reading a comic and someone's like honestly name any chris claremont scene where a fat person shows up (laughs) pick a giant line of dialogue from that yeah there's none of that like lazy writing that often feels just like the writer having to get like a tick off of just like oh i have kingpin i have to have someone call him fat for them to you know it's like sometimes it feels like a writer's just like i need to say it like i feel almost like an ai that needs to be like you know but point being that's not at all the case here and yeah like we've said i really love just the sense of distance of the kingpin from most of the action of just like him at meetings giving orders or popping off or rather like when a subordinate occasionally pops off he either arranges their death to happen immediately afterward or just like chokes a guy out in the sauna as we just get these brief imposing unquestioning moments of just like i am the boss everyone understands how this works and yeah, he is able to represent a sort of crime and evil that most supervillains don't through this sort of grounding in corruption and distance away from the superpower scenes that helps him stand out. And you're currently holding the panel sequence of him choking out presumably like the sub mafia don or whatever where one panel he's grabbing the guy by the neck and then the next panel is the other dons looking on in shock as we just get a crack sound effect um not to talk about the adaptations too much but the best performance in the entire mcu now officially is vincent d'onofrio as kingpin and it's the this is where that comes from, like, that specific approach to the character that he does, where, like, you can sit down and have a normal conversation with Kingpin, but A, you're going to be terrified for the whole thing, and B, at any moment, he could just snap and kill you, and he'll get away with it. He does not face any repercussions for snapping the neck of this Mafia Don. Yeah. And he knows he won't. I I love the confidence of him. And also, like, the frustration he feels as Matt is able to, like, live anyway, despite everything that's happened. There's a lot of just, like, talk of, like, pulling strings and, like, oh, I have a general in my pocket now. And just all of that stuff of power over other people and, like, the manipulation, like you mentioned, is all very good. I really love that he sees Foggy's impassioned defense of Matt during Matt's trial And his first thing is, after this is over, I need to hire him. And then, like, Foggy on his end, and Kingpin does not bring up Foggy again um, for ages until Foggy's, like, re-entered the main plot. But the bits of Foggy that we get are him, like, getting offered a big corporate job and then sort of going, huh, when he's up there and is like, I can't figure out whether this is actually legal, what they're doing here or not, and, like, talking about it, and it's just completely to the side of this, because Kingpin's just told some underling to go do this, and then all of this has just happened. Because, like, that's just the scale of the organization he has, that even when it's something where he's personally involved, it is, he says a word once, he has a thought, and then it is just done. Yeah, and it's the very, like... Let's see if I can think of the specific word I'm trying to think of. But just, like, the neutralization of a threat, you know, of just, like, corrupting everything. Anything that seems like a potential opposition don't even necessarily eliminate, but, like, coerce over into your side. Yeah. But in terms of the manipulated, should we should we talk about Nuke and the sudden, like... Well, sudden's the wrong word. The last two issues that are like semi-separate, but still part of the ongoing thing where it becomes not just about political or where it becomes not just about 
corruption with like the cops and the law, but also the military and our man with a literal American flag chalked on his face. Um, so when I was rereading this, I showed this to my wife and I said, hey, did you know comics have actually never been political before the past couple years? Did you know that? <laughs> Nuke, to be clear, Nuke's design is um, basically he, he looks like Captain America in terms of being like a big blonde guy. Um, but he is normally shirtless with a giant fucking machine gun, just like a green, probably camo if you were doing color modern colors pants, you know, combat boots, a fuck ton of bullets, and then he has an American flag presumably tattooed onto his face, where like, it's asymmetrical because the, the flag's asymmetrical, but the, like, stars and are over, like, one of his eyes, and then the stripes are going down to his mouth. And so, like, his upper lip is where the flag ends, and it's just spread across... Which is such a cool fucking design. It's it's very good. Like, it instantly tells you immediately, visually, who this character is and what we're doing. And, like, when we're introduced to him, it's him, like, reigning hell in another country. And he forgot to reset the death counter on his gun of the number of people he's killed. And we see that it was set to 162. And then, like, for that little intro sequence we get where he's going down into, um, where is he specifically? I think it's, it's, yeah, it's Nicaragua, where he is right now. He goes down and just starts shooting, you know, whatever locals that the U.S. has decided they need to kill. And we get panels of the counter going up, and the last one we see is, it's at 88. Like, it's so disturbing and fucked up. And, like... When the kingpin enlists him, the subordinate is like, you can't be serious. No one uses him on U.S. soil. And, like, part of what gets the kingpin in trouble is, like, the moving of this explicit warfare killing onto actual American soil. And, like, kingpin even has a line of just, like, this is war. The only thing I've done is move where it is. I uh, I also really love that, like, you know, I mean, already this comic is like, the villain is the rich guy, but he, the way that he manipulates Nuke into doing his bidding is by connecting corporations, capitalism, and America and patriotism, and framing, like, the press as the enemy, because his his Nuke winds up wanting to kill everyone in the Daily Bugle as well. Because they're trying to take down Kingpin, and Kingpin's a businessman. Businessmen are America. America is capitalism and corporatocracy and, like, you know, the, the, the 1%, essentially. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. He literally says, We who decide such things have formed a proud trinity of state and military and business. And also, can't be overstated how every other line from Nuke is him going, our boys. Yes, because he's, he's, he's the Captain America from Vietnam who was basically, like, he's the Captain America who went through Apocalypse Now. <laughs> like, that's what he's referencing in terms of just, like, the... the insanity of the character it's it's all of those i mean everyone's seen a nam movie that does this kind of thing because everyone wanted to at this point and it's he's such a powerful like physical threat as well like the other thing i love about nuke is like daredevil fighting him using his super senses to like you know read him physically and you know constantly trying new things to try and stop him and it just doesn't work because like Oh, he doesn't actually have bones anymore. Whatever they've done to super soldier him, it's clearly very different than what happened with Steve Rogers. Like, his body is actually, like, underneath the skin really fucked up. Yeah, like, like the Kingpin, it works very well because of just the real world stuff that the character is evoking. 
and the fact that he is this like super soldier who can't just easily be punched away helps make that threat feel all the more serious. It feels appropriate, really. Well, and the situation gets bad enough that Daredevil consciously winds up having to kill someone. Because he, uh, so in this attack on Hell's Kitchen, Nuke's being supported by uh, a helicopter with, like, his handler in it. And, like, the guy is machine gunning down just civilians. And Matt's just, like, has to take Nuke's gun and shoot the helicopter down. Not a thing that we see superheroes wind up having to do very often, but uh, in this case, it's quite understandable. And then I love the plot that we have for, like, the last half of the last issue, where it's basically just, like, you know, Matt and Ben know that Nuke must have been sent by Kingpin. It's the only thing that makes sense. But then trying to find out, and, like, Captain America has this... It's It's... Honestly, it's kind of nuts that this is happening in a Daredevil book, where Captain America finds out that the Super Soldier program continued after him, which he did not know, and he has to deal with, like, this piece of shit general. Um, I love this part here where, um, again, it's so weird this isn't happening in a Captain America book, but it's really great, and I wish we could get this Frank Miller back. But um, the general uh, is like, oh, you know how these things are. It's, it's you know, there's, like, secret stuff. It's nothing, it's not a big deal, Captain. Um, like, if I could tell you, I would. I just can't. But, like, it's not a big deal. You don't need to worry about it. And we've always valued your commitment and loyalty. And then Captain America grabs, like, the American flag that's in this general's room and says, I'm loyal to nothing, General, except the dream. And then the next thing we see him do is, like, beating up guards and hacking into the U.S. military service to figure out what's happening. And just being, like, really fucking disappointed. Yeah, it is very Captain America heavy. I mean, I, I like it. I think it really works. Um, I also, and, and this, is, this is just sort of a random back to nuke thing, I love the pills. I love that he has three different pills. The, the red, white, and blue ones, of course they are. <laughs> and, like, the red is the one that makes him go crazy, because it's got, like, I, get, I presume it's, like, adrenaline or something. Like, it's not clear what they are, but they, they insist on giving him whites when they want him calmer. I don't know what blues do. But yeah, and then the, the sort of struggle where they try, he, like, I like whenever there's a Captain America story where he rebels against the US government. And I like that we have half of one issue does, like, one of the best ones. Well, that was, yeah, that was Daredevil Born Again. I would highly recommend it. As we've said, this is one of the easiest Marvel comics to just pick up and read. It is that sort of style of book where you normally don't see it from Marvel, where it is just, just read this. You don't need to read anything before. You don't need to read anything after. I mean, I would say go read Anacenti's Daredevil after. It's great. It's, it's you know, very, like, Matt Murdock in Hell's Kitchen oriented until it suddenly becomes Matt Murdock in literal hell, which is also great. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, as a more or less first Daredevil impression, it was good. <laughs> don't know that I really have much else to add beyond what we already said but yeah yeah it's the sort of thing where i read it and i'm like it makes sense that this would have been the super influential 80s book that made everyone like or like this in association with the ever miller stuff like you said that appears to have defined the character since everything i ever see or know of appears to just be doing this at some point, we need to cover the Frank Miller uh, earlier issue where he plays Russian roulette with a paralyzed bullseye. You will love that issue. That one's right up your street. Sure. But, um, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is, as I said, this is the Daredevil story. If you're going to say one is the one Daredevil story, this is it. I think it's great. And we will be doing more Daredevil in the near future. Because I'm obsessed right now. I fucking love Daredevil. Yeah. In the meantime, though, next week we'll be doing something very different. 
we are going to be discussing the autobiographical manga I Saw It by Keiji Nakazawa, um, specifically using the Last Gasp publishing edition that just came out last year. We may also reference a little bit for contrast. There was an 80s comics version that came out as well that's a bit different. They did the then standard flipping of the art and adding color to it. So we may comment a little bit on the difference in presentation, but primarily reading out of the modern release. And I don't think we've done any memoir comics before at all. I don't think we've done anything that was like entirely like nonfiction in any sense, really. But this no, is all in fiction. Yeah. But this is a memoir about the bombing of Hiroshima. The only other nonfiction comic that I can remember actually reading, because I just generally am not a big nonfiction reader, is um, My Friend Dharma, which I imagine this is infinitely better than because I couldn't fucking stand that book. Yeah, this book is good. And every time I've glanced at My Friend Dharma, I've been like, wow, this looks fucking terrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, we'll see you next week with some much more serious subject matter. But the comic's good. Read it. And until then, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.